Hi, I'm Reed Huberman, and I'm the lead pastor of Soma Church in Cincinnati, Ohio, and this is our podcast. We hope it fills your heart with the love of Christ and fuels your day with hope. Here's today's message. But today we're, we're looking at this idea, we have Esther's heart. Now when we say we have Esther's heart, this is what we are saying. We're saying we are intentional. We are intentional. We believe that there is power in intentional living. We believe that if you really get intentional about something in your life, that you can change even your whole life if you get really intentional. Just to put it to you this way, you can teach yourself a whole new trade just by being intentional. You can teach yourself a whole new language just by being intentional. There is power in intentionality. And we believe that ultimately there's probably two things that you can truly be really intentional about in this life. Um, You can be intentional about a cause or you can be intentional about a purpose. And I'll explain the difference to those to you in a minute. But, But let me frame this idea about being intentional this way. Um, A while back, I heard this, and I was going to put this up on the screen in case you wanted to write it down or something like that, but I wanted to try to recreate, not that you think the way I do, but but recreate the way in which I heard these, these following 23 or so words. I believe that if you seal these 23 words in your heart, that it will, that it will make a difference in your life. These are 23 words that, that are not up on the screen because I want them to go deep into your heart. Now, maybe you want to write them down as I say it. If you're a note taker, we believe note takers are history makers. But, but regardless, let these words sink into your heart this morning. And it goes something like this. The greatness of a person. And I'll go slow for those of you who may be writing. The greatness of a person is determined by the purpose they live for, and the price they are willing to pay for it. The greatness of a person has always been and will always be, that's my addition, the greatness of a person is determined by the purpose they live for and the price they are willing to pay for it. Now think about this. Anybody that you look up to or anybody that you think is a pretty important person or somebody that really did anything great on this earth, they they all have two things in common. That they established early on what their purpose would be and then they established also the second thing which is crucial, what price they were willing to pay for that thing. And in fact, the price that those people were willing to pay for that purpose usually determined the, the value of that purpose or how effective that purpose was. Maybe you think about somebody like LeBron James. I know we're close to Cleveland, but let's go ahead and talk about the GOAT. Let's talk about the greatest of all time. Maybe you think about Michael Jordan. I'm stepping on a couple of toes this morning. Maybe you think about Martin Luther King Jr. Who, who paid the price to bring people from all different races all together and, and paid the ultimate price to do that purpose with his, with his life. But every single person that's established a purpose and then said, I will pay whatever price is necessary to, to follow through with that purpose has always achieved greatness in their life. You will have many causes. Now look at the difference between these things. You will have many causes in life. A cause is why you do something. A cause is why something happens. But I wanna encourage you this morning to establish one overarching purpose. 
for your life. Look at what a purpose is. These are not my definitions. These are grammatical definitions according to what a cause and a purpose is. A purpose is why something exists. So can I ask this question this morning? What's your purpose? Why do you exist? What did you get up this morning thinking to yourself? Why why am I here? Why do you put your feet in your shoes in the morning? Why does your your, your lungs fill up with breath morning after morning after morning? What is your life really all about? The reason I speak this this morning is not just because we want to establish our core values, but because I believe this, that the most fulfilled and the happiest people have decided what their life is all about. And they have one overarching purpose in their life that they're saying, this is what my life is for. What's your purpose? What's your purpose? Because here at Soma Church, there's, there's one purpose that I think we as Christians should all share. And even if you're not a Christian this morning, I wanna, I wanna encourage you to consider this as the reason that you were created. And I do have to make a side note here because um, when I went to uh, graduate school at Lee University, um, it, it was funny because we would spend a lot of time with incredibly intelligent people. We spend a lot of time in these little rooms talking about what these guys um, meant when they were writing books. Um, like we would say, oh, well, I think he meant this. And then another guy would say, no, he didn't mean that. He meant this. And then, according to page da-da-da-da-da and chapter da-da-da-da, this is what he meant. And I found it funny that all these intelligent people in the room couldn't decide what this one individual meant with this one sentence of this one book. It's like we're all smart enough to figure He meant something, right? I mean, none of us can figure out what it is. Um, but, but I say that story just to say this, that, that if you're going to figure out why the story of your life is written, you don't have to sit around the room with a bunch of scholars to try to figure it out. In fact, you can go to the person who wrote your story yourself. You can go to the author of your life and you can ask him, God, why am I here? There's nobody better. I think if we could have gone to those authors, but most of them were way long dead, and, and just ask them, what did you mean with that? I think it would have been funny too because probably they would have said like, you're all wrong. I didn't mean any of that. This is what I meant. But the great news is this, is that, is that God welcomes you into the reason that you were created. There's nobody better than to go to the creator to figure out why you were created. So, so what is the purpose that, that we should live for? What, what thing should motivate our lives? I'll put it to you this way. A purpose is something that you allow to interrupt your schedule. In fact, I would put it even this way, that that a purpose is something that you schedule around. It's so important to you that you are willing to be interrupted in your daily life, no matter what's going on all around you, based upon whatever this purpose truly is. And if you haven't decided what that is, we want to encourage you to do it this morning. We also want to encourage you to find a purpose that's big enough that your calendar has to bow down to it, that your busyness has to bow down to it, that the purpose is bigger than anything else that may be going on in and around your life. See, because I believe that if we're bound to a calendar, and boy, we're busier than we've ever been in this this generation, I think. Um, All of the toys and all of the tools that we have at our disposal um, are great, and they certainly make our life convenient, but don't they inundate our life with just more stuff, right? But, But I believe that it's liberating to find something in your life where everything shuts down 
where everything else bows down to this one thing, where you can be interrupted in your life, and an interruption can be liberating. I know some of us were just like, boy, I, I love Sunday afternoons and the football game. You get your Cheetos and your Coca-Cola and all that stuff, and you just enjoy, and you kick back, and nothing better disturb me. The kids, we will lock them in a closet if they come anywhere near me during this time. I know we, we don't like disruptions, but can I just tell you that if you look at it the right way, disruptions can be liberating to you, that, that, that they can show you a different way of life and that they can, they can maybe even if you allow it, show you things that should reprioritize your life. But here we, we have decided and I have decided while I may not do it all the time and I may not be faithful to it all the time, that there is one overarching purpose in my life that is worth living for. And it comes from the story of Esther. So we're incredibly intentional about living on purpose. So you say, Reed, what are you intentional about? There's, we're intentional about a lot of things here. We're intentional about serving. We're intentional about giving. We're intentional about our lives being used for something greater than ourselves. We're intentional about a lot of things. But ultimately, at the root of everything we will do here at Soma Church is that we are intentional about one overarching purpose in our lives. And it comes from this story, the story of Esther. Let me give you some background so you know exactly where we're going to be at when we finally read Esther 5.8. But Esther is this great story. Um, it starts with this king named Ahasuerus. He's a maybe Prince Charming kind of guy, but he doesn't really seem that charming if you read the story. But get that image in your mind anyway. So he's the king. He's the ruler of the land. And he's got this wife, Vashti. And they're having this big party. And he says because he's had a little bit to drink. The Bible doesn't pull any punches. He's uh, living the free life there, and he's um, feeling a little good, and he says, you know what we should do at this time, man? We should, I want you guys to see how pretty my wife is. And, and, and he says, go tell her to put her crown on and, and come here and show, show herself off. Show how pretty she is to everybody. Well, Vashti gets that news, and she's doing her own little party over to the side with some women and some other rulers of the kingdom who are females, and she says, you can tell that guy that he can go keep on drinking by himself because I am not coming up there to go and show how pretty I am to everybody. Now, you might say to yourself, that's commendable for that woman, but needless to say, the story goes that, that at that moment, um, Ahasuerus exiled her from the kingdom, and she was no longer the queen, and he kicked her out because she refused to come into the to the presence of the king. And so, of course, when you're the king of the land, you're going to uh, choose your next bride. What do you do? You hold a Miss Universe contest, and you find the most beautiful girl in the whole land that you can possibly find, and then she becomes your next wife. So think like The Bachelor or something like that. So, uh, so they're holding The Bachelor, and all these eligible bachelorettes are coming to, to see if they can be the next queen. Who's going to get the rose? Well, this one little modest but beautiful girl named Esther, she applies for the contest, and she ends up winning. She ends up winning. Long story short, she's enjoying her time as queen, and she's enjoying uh, being the queen. And the second in command to Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, he comes to him because he's upset. A guy named Mordecai, who also happens to be Esther's cousin, um, uh, uh, this guy named Haman was uh, the second in command, was, was going through the city streets, and he wanted everyone to bow to him, and Mordecai refused to bow to him. 
And so he goes up to the king, and, and Haman says, uh, these people, these Jews, they won't bow to anybody but their God, by the way, that, that should be the heart of every single person, that the one person we will bow down to is the one who made us. And they say, he won't bow down to me, he won't follow rules, and I just think, you know, king, you need to go ahead and head this off at the pass, and you need to kill every single Jew. Kill them all. And the king's just like probably drinking again, maybe, because he's like, sure, whatever, kill them all. And you think to yourself, it's almost like this precursor of what happened in World War II. It's like this pre-Hitler kind of guy comes and says, let's kill every single Jew. And the king issues an edict throughout the kingdom, kill all the Jews. Well, before he can implement that order, Mordecai hears about the order and he writes a letter to, to his niece, um, and, and he sends it to her and, and says, hey, listen, this is happening. You gotta do something about it. Esther writes back to Mordecai and says, I can't do anything about it. I'm just the queen. Um, I could get killed. Didn't you hear what happened to Vashti? I don't want that to happen to me too. And then, and then Mordecai writes back to Esther. And this is what he says. I love this because quite frankly, if it was me having this interchange, I'd be like, well, you're right, probably. And yeah, you gotta protect yourself and be careful and be safe, okay. That's what, that's what I would equivocate probably. But this is what he writes back and this is what he says. He says, don't think that if you remain silent, you're safe. Because if you don't, you're Jewish too. And just because you're the queen, don't think you'll be safe. And then he comes and he gets a little bit more encouraging and he says, but Esther, listen, perhaps you have been the queen and become the queen for such a time as this. Maybe that's why you won the beauty contest. Yeah, you're beautiful. Yeah, you're great. Yes, you're a modest, good, humble young lady. You don't let your beauty get to your head. But perhaps there's something bigger to the fact that you are the queen and that there's an ultimate purpose in your life, and that's why you're here. Esther finally writes back and she says, fine, okay, I'll do it. Pray for me and I'll go before the king and I'll tell him to overturn that order. And I gotta take a moment just to stop and say this, that, that I know you may be going through situations and difficulties or any number of things in your life right now, but I wanna declare the, the same thing as boldly as Mordecai did to Esther to each and every person here. You may think that what's happening to you is unfortunate, or you may even think it's by accident, but there is a God who loves you, who is ordering and directing the events of your life. Now, that doesn't mean he's doing everything. It doesn't mean that some of the bad things that are happening to you, God did those things. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is that Romans 8, 28, God works everything to the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's a special verse you need to memorize. It doesn't say that everything that happens to you will be good. It just says that if you love God and you follow him, he'll make it good. He'll turn it around to good. Boy, that's powerful. That's beautiful. And that's what happened to Esther. And so she finally goes and appears before the king. And if the king doesn't stretch out his scepter to Esther, Esther is going to be taken out and she'll be slaughtered and killed. But if he accepts her into his presence by stretching out his scepter, she can come without punishment. 
And so she comes and she's dressed up and she's beautiful and she comes before the king not knowing if it's gonna cost her life and she comes before him and and the king stretches out his scepter just like us coming into the presence of a holy God even though we don't deserve it and even though he's so good and we're so not some of the time, uh, he welcomes us lovingly into his presence and so this is what King Xerxes did to his wife and so she comes and this is what she finally says to him. And so when we talk about him being about being intentional about a specific purpose, here's what we're talking about. Look at this verse with me in Esther 5:8. If the king regards me with favor, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come tomorrow to the banquet I will prepare for them, and then I will answer the king's question. By the way, the king's question, for those of you who want to know, is this. He said, um, ask me anything up to half of the kingdom. I'll give it to you all. Up to half of the kingdom, it's yours, Esther. And so she says, listen, I want one thing, but I'll ask you tomorrow. And so the one thing you should know is that she prepared this banquet for the bad guy, Haman, and her husband, Xerxes. And she says, we're going to do this thing, and and I'll prepare it for you, um, and then tomorrow I'll tell you what I want. And so she was incredibly intentional about preparing a huge feast because she knows how much men love food, and she felt like, on the food thing, if I can ask them there, that's when it's going to help. So she was incredibly intentional about planning this huge party for this bad guy that didn't deserve it and her husband so that she could set the stage for asking this this question to overturn that edict to kill all of her people. But more than anything, what we want to look at today is just the beginning of this verse. If the king regards me with favor and if it pleases the king. When I say that we're intentional, when I say that we should develop a purpose for our life that that orders the calendar of our life, what I am actually saying is that here at Soma Church, we want to be about one thing. We want to be about pleasing the king. We want to be about pleasing the king of kings and the Lord of lords. When we serve when we set up and tear down, when we speak, when we sing, whenever we do, whatever we do, we want to put this above all else. God, what pleases you? God, God, what would bring pleasure to you? Look at some of these verses so you know that this is not just the story of Esther. Look at 2 Corinthians 5 and 9. 2 Corinthians 5 and 9. It says this. That whether you, we make it our goal to please him, whether we at home, in the body, or away from it. We make it our goal to please him. Look at this next one, Ephesians 5, verse 10. And find out what pleases God. Look at this next verse, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1. And as for other matters, brothers and sisters, we are instructed, we, we, have, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. And now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. How you should live in order to please God. To bring pleasure to him. To bring honor to him. With our attitudes, with our speech, with the way that we think, with our with our actions, and in everything that we do in this life, how can I please God? Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't know that I always do this. Um, When I'm in the fray, 
When I'm under pressure, do I always do what pleases God? No, I don't. But I will tell you this, that there is one goal, there is one purpose, there is one overarching desire in my life that I've established long ago, that my life is not for myself, but I have a goal on this earth, and it is to please him who gave so much to me. By the way, I want to tell you the power of this. The, the book of Esther was not going to be included in the Bible um, because it nowhere in the whole of the story mentions the name God. God is not even referred to one time in the book of Esther. But the reason the people who compiled the Bible finally decided to put Esther in the Old Testament was because while God may have not been apparent or obvious, it is undeniable that he was present in all of the affairs that took place in this story. And it became, by the way, one of the famous Jewish festivals celebrating what took place with the deliverance of the Jews at the hand of this woman, Esther. Boy, you may say, um, I'm not so sure about the place of women in the Bible. This whole book is dedicated to a singular woman who saved a whole people group, giving honor to this woman. But, but the reason I say that about, about God not being a parent but still being present is that if we're going to be honest with ourselves this morning, don't you feel like that sometimes? Like, you know he's there, but you're like, where are you? Come on, am I right? Like, I prayed about this, God, and I believed you for this, but why isn't it happening? Can I just encourage you when you feel like that? First of all, we all feel like that from time to time, even, yes, this preacher guy. Can I encourage you that when you do feel like that, though, when the Bible doesn't even speak clearly to you about a subject and maybe you're in this gray area and you don't know what to do and maybe you're even praying about the will of God, can I go ahead and just, just encourage you to adopt this philosophy with your life when you're not sure what to do, you're not sure where to go, just ask this question and it will change the game. God, what would please you in this scenario? Oh boy, it'll keep you from doing what would just please you because sometimes that gets you in trouble, gets me in trouble. And, and if you ask that question, God, what would please you in this scenario? It'll help you because God sees things from a thousand foot view. We see what's in front of our face. God can see the end from the beginning. If you'll learn to ask that question, God, what would please you? God, what would bring you honor? It will change the game for your life, it really will. Let me share this story with you because it's one of my favorite guys. I love this dude. His name is Eric Little. And if you've ever seen, if you grew up in the 80s, maybe you heard Chariots of Fire or you're familiar with the song. And if you're not, you need to go check it out on YouTube and you might even actually be able to see the entire movie. I'm not sure how legal that is, but it's a great movie. You need to see it, Chariots of Fire. And it's all about this guy named Eric Little. And Eric Little was called the Flying Scotsman, one of my heroes, because when he would run, he wouldn't run like a normal person. By the way, uh, Usain Bolt doesn't run like a normal person either. Uh, a guy that big is not supposed to be able to run that fast. Same thing with Eric Little. He had the most unorthodox running style. He was called the Flying Scotsman, one, because he was from Scotland, but because when he would run, he would throw his head back and he would sling his arms backward and he would almost run like, like this. Um, he had a very distinct running style. Um, and he eventually made it to the Olympics, you know, the pinnacle of, the, of your sport. And he was going to run the 100 meter because he's a very fast dude. And he was expected to win. 
But one of their qualifying heats was on Sunday. And Eric Little had a decision to make because he was a Christian. And he decided that he would not run in that heat because he wanted to honor God on the Sabbath day, on the day when Christians celebrate the worship of of Christ. He said, I'm not going to run in this heat. And they said, you know that means that you're disqualified and you can't win a gold medal. You're disqualified from the 100 meter. And he said, yeah, I know, but I can't run. Now think about that. Like, that's a guy that was living for something bigger than himself. Because you get to the top of your game, you can win a gold medal, and he says, nah, I'm not going to do that because I have a standard here. Now, you may not even agree with the standard. You're like, dude, just run. God doesn't care. It's just another day in a calendar, and you can celebrate the Sabbath on Monday. But regardless, we're talking about him today because of this very purpose. Um, And so he developed a purpose in his life, and his purpose was that I'm going to honor God and please God with my life. And so he didn't run in that race, and he wasn't able to run in the race that he normally runs in in his best race. And so he had to run in in another different race, the 400 meter, that he was not very good at and that he was not expected to do very well at. And so he gets up that day and he goes to run a race that he's not expected to win. And he runs that day, and wouldn't you know it, he gets first place. And he wins a gold medal after all. Now afterwards, he was asked about his race and and running that race that he was not used to running because he's a short distance runner and he's not a longer distance runner. And, And they said, Eric, how did you do it? And he said, well, I established in my mind early on that for two-thirds of the race, I would run as fast as I possibly could. I would give it my all. I would leave nothing out on the track. I would run quicker than I've ever run in my life for two-thirds of the race. And then he said, and for the last third of the race, by God's grace, I would run even faster. Come on. That's pretty awesome. I'd run even faster. And he said this, God made me for a purpose, and God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. When I'm doing the thing that I was created for, I feel the pleasure of God. Now, at the risk of saying this and maybe alienating some people from the crowd, I just want to say it. I don't know if you've ever felt that. The pleasure of God when God is truly pleased about something, when he smiles down at what you're doing and he's like, well done. But that's what we're all living for, whether you know it or not. We're waiting to hear the words, well done. When we finally cross the finish line of this life and we get to the end and our days are done and we finally stand before the one who made us, what will truly matter? What will have made the biggest difference? And I would dare say to you this, the things that please God the most are the things as you lay your head down on your pillow for the last time and as you stand before the one who made you, the thing that pleased him the most are the things that you will be the most proud of. So what pleases God? What pleases God? Even when things are silent and you don't see him moving, what would please him? Well, I want to start this probably in a backwards way, and I just want to show you three things that don't please God, and then I want to quickly, because it doesn't take very much to show you the one thing that pleases God. 
Um, and I want that thing to stick in your mind the most anyway. I want to show you three things that don't please God according to the Bible. And then I want to show you one thing that does please God. And so the first one is this, is that God is not pleased by division. Division does not please God. Read the scripture verse. This is 1 Corinthians 1.10. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another in what you say and that there be no division among you. Listen to this. But that you be perfectly united in mind and in thought. I believe God hates division. And I'll go ahead on a limb and I'll just go ahead and tell you that I believe the devil loves it. If he can get us fighting against each other, we will not be as good as we possibly can be because we are better together. None of us are better than all of us. When we truly work together, when we truly love one another, man, that's when we can do the most for God. I, and I heard somebody say this past week, and I believe it's true. I is not I without we. We need each other. We need community. That's why I'm excited about everything that's happening here at Soma Church and the things that we have to look forward to in the future because we are developing a true community of people where you're not just a number and you're not just a backside in a seat, but that you matter to each and every one of us. We want to see you all find what God has called you to do, and then we want to help you find a place where you can do it and find the significance that God has created you for. But we can't do that in isolation. We really can't, guys. You know, I, I don't want to use an extreme example, but this is an extreme example. But, but it, it's said of um, most recently these mass shooters who have gone around just summarily shooting people, that almost every single one of them have moved themselves into isolation and that they no longer operate in normal social circles. See, because if God, if you can get, if you're alone and you remove yourself from other people, you won't be everything that God wants you to be. I truly believe that in isolation we suffer in silence, but in community we find victory in Christ and with his people. God doesn't want us to be alone. In fact, I've even seen this in church because it's most pronounced and most awful when it happens in church. You can have a conversation about a person without ever talking to that person in your head and then you can have a conversation with another person about that person and never once really talked about how you feel and you can demonize that person. See, in isolation we suffer. I believe probably more so than anything else that in our present age we recognize how division plays a part in our society with the death of civil dialogue. Nowadays, it just seems that if you disagree with me, then you're my enemy. I think we've lost the ability in some ways of really talking to people who disagree with us and hold a vastly different opinion than us. Man, you can see it definitely in the political arenas. There's, there's very little intelligent dialogue and discourse happening on a regular basis. There's ranting and raving and there's tribalism. This is my camp and this is what we believe and this is my camp and this is what we believe and you're my enemy. Very rarely do you see people engaging one another with vastly different opinions and trying to figure out why they think the way they do. No, because more so, especially in the age of social media, what we have is we have a platform just to, to spout off our opinion rather than to enter into conversations with people. 
But God doesn't love division. God loves it when people get together because you're better together. I'll just put it to you the way the Bible put it. One can put 1,000 to flight. Two can put 10,000 to flight. You are better with another. And that's the beauty of the church is that you don't have to do life alone. You don't have to go your own way. You don't have to be in isolation, but that you can do life together with other people. You can, you can learn the way other people think, boy, this is probably one of the, the worst things about the death of civil dialogue. Not that it just puts people in tribal camps and that it isolates people, but, but that it, it stops our intellectual growth. Because I have found great, and I don't do it all the time, to be honest, but, but I have found when I have done it that it helps me think more clearly about what I believe and what I think to speak with somebody who, vastly, who is vastly different than me, who totally disagrees with me. Just think if that's the kind of society that we lived in where we discussed our differences rather than fought them out or yelled them out. I don't believe that God is pleased with division. He's definitely not pleased when God's people are in, in division one with another. He wants us to be united. He wants us to, be, to work together because, again, none of us are better than all of us. Together we can do more than we can ever do alone. And I already quoted it, but, but just for the sake of doing it again, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with others. So the next thing that God really doesn't like is that God is not pleased with stress. Now, this should be liberating to some of you, unless you're just like, oh gosh, now I'm worried about the fact that God doesn't like stress, and now I'm stressing out about the fact that God doesn't like stress. But no, God doesn't like stress. Listen to, the, listen to this verse. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now, listen to that. Now, I do not do this. Some of you are super perfect and you're pretty awesome. I'm pretty sure my wife does this because she's basically a saint. Be anxious for nothing. Boy, gotta be honest, that's convicting when I read that. But here's the promise. Instead of being anxious the next time you go through something, give God thanks for it. I know, but here's what it says, is that if you can find a place where you can not be anxious but be thankful, and, 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 and then this will happen, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and mind in Christ Jesus. Here's why I think God does not like stress. Because when you stress about things, you're putting more faith in your problems than you are in God, who is bigger than your circumstance. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you have a Jesus who is bigger than anything that you will ever do and anything that you will ever go through and he can help you through every season of life? Anybody believe that? Yeah? Yeah, he can help you with whatever situation and circumstance you're in. So I wanna just encourage you. Not that you'll do it every time. You'll, you'll, you'll make mistakes here and there, but the next time you're going through something difficult, here's what I would encourage you to do. Take that difficulty and even put it on the shelf for just a moment. And, and just start thanking him for the things he has done. I'm just telling you, I'm just encouraging you, do that the next time that you're going through a difficult situation and see what it does to your attitude. See what it does to your heart. See what it does to the level of stress that, that you're operating in at that moment. Just start thanking him for the things that he has done and not the thing that he's not doing with this situation over here. And I promise you what's gonna happen, according to the scripture, is that peace is gonna start flooding your heart. It's going to. And it's not gonna mean that this gets resolved magically, necessarily. In fact, the peace 
comes in the midst of not having this resolve because you recognize that your God is bigger than that, than that circumstance and you rise above that circumstance even though it may not have been resolved. Peace can flood your heart when you truly do this. Now listen to this statistic. 43% of American adults are constant checkers. You know what that means? You know what a constant checker is? I got my phone here. Yeah, here's a constant checker. Hey, how's it going? Uh-huh. Oh, sweet, check out Kim Kardashian's Instagram. That's what constant checker is. And then go back to the conversation. Yeah, 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 that's great, man. Cool, 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 cool. Boom. Oh, got five likes on that. Nice. That's what a constant checker is. Six, 43% of American adults are constant checkers, meaning always on their phone checking stuff. 63% of millennials say they're attached to their phone or tablet. Millennials report higher stress rates in direct association with their use of technology, although 65% of, of users agree that incorporating digital detox is just putting it all down and periods of unplugging is important for balance. Now listen to that. 65% of people believe that, that unplugging is healthy for you. But listen to this. Only 28% of people actually do it. See, we're, we're more connected than we've ever been, but if we're not careful, the one thing that that can do is cause more stress in our life, more issues in our life, more drama in our life. And, and the Lord wants to bring you into something to say, hey, what would please me here is that is that, that doesn't cause you stress, whatever that thing is. All right, the third thing is this, is that, and I, and I know this one's a little bit challenging, but this is, this is what the Bible says, Hardness of heart does not please God. By the way, it's a biblical way of kind of saying it, I guess, but we probably understand what this means, but refusal to change is basically what hardness of heart is. Look at this scripture verse. So he looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts and said to them, man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. So God was distressed and he was grieved at the stubbornness or the hardness of their heart. And then he speaks to a man who has a withered hand and he tells him, stretch out your hand and see what happens. Now, I love this. What do you think about the things that you say you cannot change in your life? What do you truly think about the things that you would say you cannot change about yourself? I love this, word, this picture here in this scripture verse because what's happening is that there's people around Jesus and they're saying, oh, you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that and, and oh, you're not gonna do this and you're not gonna do that. And, and, and then Jesus says, oh yeah, watch. And then he speaks to a man with a withered hand and he says, come, stretch out your hand. And what he's actually saying to him is he's saying, you can't, those guys are saying, you can't heal on the Sabbath. And then Jesus says, oh yeah, stretch out, stretch out your hand, dude. And, and the guy stretches his hand out and immediately his hand is completely restored. Now put yourself in the shoes of that guy with the withered hand, okay? So everybody else around you has two normal hands. You're the one guy in the room with the withered hand. Basically, you've got a, a hand that, that doesn't operate, that doesn't function anymore. And, and it's withered, it's drawn up, either from atrophy or maybe you were born that way and your hand was just underdeveloped, all right? And, and so Jesus comes to him and he says, stretch out your hand. So Jesus, among all of these hard-hearted people, tells this one guy to do the one thing that he cannot do, right? Stretch out your hand. It's like, Jesus, ding, 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 ding. 
He tells him to do the one thing he cannot do. And he also tells him to do the one thing he probably does not want to do. Jesus is good at doing that, by the way, telling, asking you to do something that you may not necessarily want to do because it's better for you even though you may not want to do it. And, and, and why does he not want to do it? Why? Because this guy's got a withered hand. It's like, why does he want to show and expose his frailty and his weakness and his disability to everybody? Why expose it like that, Jesus? And why not be a little bit more courteous about, about this man's disability? Because I believe that sometimes some of the greatest blessings of our life come when we are willing to, to, to change and to, to step out and to do something we've never done before or to maybe even question the status quo and, and, and to stretch out where we haven't stretched out before. And it says that as he stretched his hand out that it, that it came whole and it was healed. Boy, that's the way sometimes God will move in your life if you're willing to maybe try something or do something that you've never done before or maybe even do something you don't want to do, something that's not comfortable for you, to expose your weakness in front of it. Boy, that wasn't comfortable for him to do it, but it was in that moment where he stretched out his hand. Why not just heal it, Jesus? He could have done it, snap his fingers, send an angel, boom, touch it. He could have done anything he wanted to, but he wanted to make this man get to the place where he says, the one thing I can't do and the one thing I don't want to do, if I do it, that's when the blessing will come. See, God doesn't want us to get so set in our ways because he wants to show us some things that we've never seen before. But if we do what we've always done, we'll get what we've always gotten. But God wants us to see things that we've never seen or never dreamed possible before in our life. But in order to do that, we gotta be willing to rock the boat a little bit. We gotta be willing to do things that we don't wanna do presently and maybe something that we don't even feel like we can do. God is a master at taking withered situations in your life and stretching you so that you can do something Miraculous. Boy, I don't know if that sounds preachy, but it sounds pretty good to me, God. So God looked at them in anger, and he was distressed. In other words, he was displeased with the hardness of their hearts, with the stubbornness of their hearts. God is looking for some people this morning who would say, God, use me. God, shape me. God, mold me. I'm not too set in my ways. I'm not so old that I, that I can't be changed, God because you want to do something, maybe new, and maybe something I've never seen before in my life. And then the last thing, this is where the money's at. What is God pleased with? This is Colossians 1.10. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, do these two things. Bear fruit in every good work and grow in the knowledge of God. So if you want to please him, because we spend all this time talking about what doesn't please him, division, stress, hardness of heart, all that stuff, what does please him? And I can succinctly encapsulate it for you in just this one sentence. What pleases God? Comma. Spending time with him. Spending time with him. So, you know, I could say about a million different things like obedience pleases God, faith pleases God. I preach a whole sermon on every single one of those things. But ultimately, at the root of every single one of those things, obedience, faith, and anything that truly brings pleasure to God is this. It's if you will take time to spend time in his presence, he'll work obedience in your heart, he'll work faith in your heart, and he'll change things. And let me go ahead so I don't become irrelevant to some of you here today. I just want to encourage you. If you don't know Jesus, if you've never spent 
one moment talking to him in prayer. Try it. Just try it. See what happens. Maybe you even need to pray this prayer. God, um, I don't know if you're real, but I want to know you. Show me if you're real. I believe that God is a rewarder of those who seek him so much to the point that even if you're not a believer, but you pray that prayer and you mean it in your heart, that God will show up and he will touch your heart and he will show you that he is who he says he is. He'll come into your life. But this is what pleases God more than anything is that he wants you. Before he made your occupation, before he made the car that you drive, before he made your future, the one thing that God wanted before all of that stuff is he wanted to spend time with you. If there's one thing that I could undo in the Bible, you know what it would be? It would be what Eve did with that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I'd just take that away. Love to erase that. Probably glad it didn't because it paved the way for Jesus. But, but what I'm saying about all of that is that before that happened, before that event in the Bible, what the Bible's trying to paint as a picture there is just this, that, that there was one thing beyond all else that they did in the garden, and it was spend time with God. And then what's the first thing that happens after they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Adam and Eve are now hiding from God. See, I don't believe that that was ever God's will to keep people hiding, to keep people distant, and to keep people afraid. God wanted to do this every single day of their life, more and more and more. It wasn't there, it wasn't God's will to bring them to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was God's will to bring them and connect them to the tree of life so that what was in that tree would be in them, life. And so when it says to bear fruit, and to grow in the knowledge of God. How do you do those things? Well, Jesus said this. I'm the vine, connect to me, and you'll bear fruit. You want to you know him better? Spend time with him. See, connect to him, spend time with him. You, you get what I'm saying? Is that, that in his presence, spending time with him changes things. Now, there's a statistic I heard just recently that 82% of preachers don't spend 15 minutes a day with God in prayer. Not even 15 minutes. And regardless of whether you're a preacher or not, this is the one thing that I'll tell you. It's one of the most fulfilling, rewarding things I have ever done in my life is to spend daily time with God. Daily time. And if you do that, not only is it pleasing for God to spend time with you because he loves you, it is also the way in which God will develop in you the fruit that is pleasing to him in your life so that you don't have to go around every single day of your life questioning, God, what would please you? God, what would please you? God, what would please you? What will happen is that God will begin to start stirring your heart and changing your heart and make you more like him. That's what will happen you end up becoming more and more like the people that you're around. So I would encourage you, take some time this week. Just spend some time with him. And maybe you don't even know what that means. And all I would say to you is this, just take a moment to unplug and just talk with God like as if you were calling him on the cell phone. And just talk to him. And maybe this is one of the ways you want to talk to him. You can go to Galatians 5 and you can look at the fruit of the Spirit based upon this scripture verse. And you can just say, God, help me love more. Boy, that's a prayer that I've been praying. God, help me be more patient. Ooh, you better believe it. Erica's saying amen right now. 
God, help me to be more kind. You can pray every single one of those fruits that it's talking about here in your life and just ask God to produce that fruit in your life. There's nine of them. It'll take you at least five minutes to do that, perhaps. But just pray. Spend some time with him and see what God does in your life. As he begins to produce in you this desire, as he begins to turn your heart toward him, I believe that you'll slowly but surely and increasingly develop a life that pleases him above all else. He'll create in you a heart that that pleases him. So maybe then, rather than saying for the philosophy of our life, if I have time, or if it's convenient, if it's comfortable, if I'm used to it, if it takes me not so far out of my comfort zone, if it's not awkward, if it's like I expected it to be, rather than to saying any of those ifs, can we get to the place, come on, where we just say this, if it pleases you, that's what I'll do. That's what I'll do. God, does this please you? And if so, that's what I'll be about. Thank you so much for listening to today's message. For more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and check out our channel for past episodes. If you liked what you heard, please consider rating or even sharing it with friends. That would mean so much to us. For more content from Soma Church or to connect with us, go to soma-church.com. We love you and we can't wait to meet you.